Clear prop. Star 73 is Cherokee, number two, following twin traffic, three mile final. There's something One trailer Bravo makes for in runway 25, going uh, four mile final. This is Behind the Prop with United Flight Systems owner and licensed pilot Bobby Doss and his co host, major airline captain and designated pilot examiner Wally Mulhern. Now, let's go Behind the Prop. What's up, Wally? Hey, Bobby, how are you? I'm good. This week we have a what I'll call a powerhouse guest with us. Uh, we've talked about the Killing Zone many times on the show. This week we have Paul Craig joining us. He is currently a professor of aeronautics and has written many more books than the Killing Zone. Welcome to the show, Paul. Well, great to have you. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me, Bobby and uh, and Wally. Paul's sitting in his home in I believe Nashville, Tennessee. He's covered and behind the prop gear which we uh, love and appreciate we'll post a picture of that uh paul you've been in this business for a long time and have tons of experiences we can't wait to have the conversation but give the listeners a little bit of background on really what you're doing today and kind of how you got to writing books and really when you became a cfi well first of all i'm a i'm a big fan of, of the of the podcast i listen to it almost every week um I always get something out of it. I always learn something new. I mean, uh, this this job of being uh, in aviation as a flight instructor and a pilot's a lifelong learning experience, and this is part of that. So I really appreciate what you guys have been doing. You're doing aviation a, a really a great service, and uh, so just uh, I, I just keep doing what you're doing because it's so so important. But the, and I really appreciate you uh, you know mentioning the, the one of the books. Uh, you know, I, I kind of got into writing aviation books sort of by accident. Um, I can promise you that all of my past English teachers are flabbergasted that I could write anything that would be published, right? Um, when I was a young flight instructor, I became a flight instructor for the first time in 1983 and uh, went to work as a freelance right away. Um, and I was writing a few articles that got published in some, some of the magazines back then. And I had this idea that maybe if I pieced them all together, it can be like a book manuscript. And so I did that and I sent it off to all of the publishers that had books on my own bookshelf, right? All the aviation publishers. And for everyone that I sent, I got a rejection letter pretty quickly, you know, pretty quick. Well, one day I was in my office and a guy called me and said, hey, this is, uh, this is Jeff Orsinger from uh, McGraw-Hill in New York. And I wanted to talk to you about the book manuscript you sent us. And I'm, I, was, I was thinking, you know, who is this really? It's probably one of my buddies, right? Who's just pulling my leg. And uh, so he, he started telling me that they had read it and they, they really liked it and on and on and on. After a while, he said, but we're not going to publish it. And I'm going, why don't you just send me a rejection letter like everybody else? He said, well, we're a real conservative company. We don't do anything off the street. We have these marketing guys tell us what pilots need to, need to read. And then we get somebody who we think can write and, see if they'll do a project. So would you be interested in doing one? And, and so I said, yes. And, and uh, he said, said, we really liked your style. And that was important because I didn't even know I had a style, right? I'm just, uh, I, it's, been, it's been said that it's more conversational. It doesn't mm -hmm. read like a textbook. Um, and it really, it's pretty, it's pretty simple, guys. I just sit down and have a conversation with my keyboard, just like I was having a conversation with you on a Saturday afternoon at the hangar. And that's just how I go about doing it. And that's really how it came about. And, um, and uh, so I started writing a few for them. And after a while, I started thinking, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm the flight instructor out here working every day. I'm, I'm the one that should be telling them what we need. So after that, I started pitching my own ideas and, 
and then the, you know eventually uh, got to the point where we got to the book that Wally uh, has mentioned before, uh, and you have Bobby about the Killing Zone. The Killing Zone wasn't actually my title. I was trying to go with Danger Zone, but you might remember there's a song in the in the movie Top Gun. I was I guess it was taken, and may, maybe the maybe the uh, publisher wanted something a little bit more sensational. But but it was the idea is that um, you know. I'm a, as a flight instructor, and Wally as an examiner, and, and Bobby used an aviation professional. Our, our job is to, is to try to protect our fellow pilots and help them have the decision-making qualities that will keep them safe. And so that's really the whole idea of the book. I started examining, you know, when do these people have accidents and when are they at most in risk? And it turns out that student pilots are extremely safe. They're the, one of the safest groups of pilots going. Well, we'd like to think we know why, right? It's the flight instructor who is intervening and providing the, 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 the necessary uh, veto, I guess, from, from, from flying on days when they should and those kind of things. But as soon as the pilots get in the 100-hour range and up to about 350, the, the accidents go way up. And uh, uh, is that a combination of lack of experience, lack of decision-making? I don't know, but we, I tried to attack the killing zone with trying to look at the various things that are get people into trouble and, and can we get them to think twice? Can we get them to um, uh, you know, make, the, make the better decisions, uh, not to press forward, not to, not to listen to others, but to, but to say no sometimes when they need to. And um, uh, as, as any instructor will tell you, you, you never exactly know what good you do. You know, I'd like to think that someone's facing a difficult decision and they make the right decision and, and remain safe because of something I might have said or some example I might have said. Um, but you never know because you can't count the accident that never happens. So yeah. so we don't we don't know exactly what, what you know what good we do. But, um, uh, you know, that's that's our mission. The second edition of the book. Uh, uh, you know, the first edition of the Killing Zone started in, was dated from 1983 through 1999, and I picked 1983 as the start because, as I mentioned, that's when I first became a flight instructor. So I figure that anything that has happened since 1983 has taken place on my watch, and uh, I, I take this personally. Uh, and so we try to look at the issues, and then the second edition start took up about 2000, and and uh, I think the the data on that one goes to about 2012. I guess someday we'll need to write a third edition. Maybe, maybe Bobby, you need to write that one, though. Uh, we'll well, I don't know if I, I, I'm impressed with the way you put the data together. And I, I listened to it. Honestly, I listened to it via Audible book. Um, I think it's a you don't sound like the guy reading it. So it's, no, they didn't let me do my own voiceover. How about that? I was really upset. The uh, but the way the book's read, I think it's it's really good information and it does open up the pilot's eyes to where trouble begins. You already answered a couple of our questions we wanted to ask though. Where did the title come from? Uh, expand on that a little bit more. You said you were going to call it the danger zone. I, I had made the guess the publisher changed the name. Uh, yeah, that's what happened. And I'm not, I'm not um, upset with it. It's fine. Uh, it's, it probably isn't the kind of title that someone might give us a Christmas gift, <laughs> but uh um, but, but I mean, that's still the same concept that there, that there's a range where pilots are most susceptible to having an accident. 
So that's where we have to we have to attack them. That's where we have to have seminars. That's where we have to have follow up. That's where we have to have you know flight reviews to try to um, you know take them under our arm and uh, or under our wing in this case and um, and usher them through that that zone where they're at the most most uh, highest level of probability. It, you know, there's just it is just numbers. I mean, it, you're, you're not. Uh, an unsafe pilot with 350 hours and all of a sudden a safe pilot at 351. That's not how it works. But, um, but that's where people need to be aware, the most keenly aware of, um, of the, the, uh, the susceptibility. The title of the book, it's been translated into many languages. And uh, one of them is in Portuguese. And when you translate it to Portuguese and then translate it back to, to English, the title there is uh, The Zone of Death. So I, I never wrote a book called the zone of death, but uh, that's what it is in Argentina, I guess. Well, and we, we bought a bunch of copies. We're going to have them in the pilot supply shop here at the fly school. If anybody wants to come get a copy, but it, it honestly is one of those things that I just can't put on the counter and have a brand new mom and dad with a kid that comes in to take a discovery flight. See that as something that we're promoting. Like, I, And it's not the book, it's the title. And I love the title now as a, as a grown-up pilot or a, a little bit more time than the most, but um, I almost think a third edition should just be a, a title change that says like, you know, how to be the best pilot in the world. Cause that's really a lot of the stories you tell just make someone think again. Well, the first book I wrote, the title was be a better pilot, pretty simple title, but I think probably was- McGraw Hill wants a little bit more bite. <laughs> no question. Yeah, and this, the the other question we were going to ask really was: Is there a third edition coming? So we'll, we'll take that up on maybe a future episode. But uh, don't don't stop doing what you're doing because likewise, I mean, think about it. In the last ten years, electronic flight bags, four flight, ADSB in and out. There's a lot of stuff that's happened since this last edition that we're going to need to see. You know, when I wrote the second edition, I was very curious to see if this danger zone still existed. You know, was all the work we were doing, was it attacking the zone? Was it, was it uh, leveling the zone? Well, it turns out in the second edition that those years between 2000 and 2012, um, there were fewer accidents, good news, but the zone was still there. There's still, is, there's still this bump in accidents that, that uh, from about 100 to 350 is the, that zone where pilots, from the numbers, doesn't mean any one individual pilot is more dangerous because they're in that place, but they should be aware that this is that's other pilots have been caught and are susceptible to, to uh, problems in that, in that, uh, in that zone. The books have done all kinds. I, I got a letter from an inmate at the uh, Texas state penitentiary in Huntsville. And somehow or another, one of the books had gotten into the penitentiary library and he wrote me a letter and asked me a bunch of questions and a handwritten letter. So I wrote him back. And, uh, and then in about a month and a half, another letter came and there was two other. So I was teaching ground school behind the penitentiary wall there. there I would have never thought that would happen with. <laughs> the, they're, they're probably looking for you to teach them a way to fly out. No, no I would, I'm, I'm sure that everything got censored on the way in. How short does the runway really have to be to create lift? That, that's interesting, Carl, because Huntsville is, what, 25 miles from here? Something like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, people write me all, all the time, as I mentioned before. I, uh, um, I have a friend now. He wasn't a friend before I read one of the books. He's a, he's a cupcake baker in Toronto. 
Uh, I have one of my one of my pen pals because of the books is the first violin of the San Francisco Philharmonic. It, it's wow. just unusual the, the cross section. Well, I guess uh, the bug of aviation got you at an earlier age. Where where where's where's your history from aviation come from? How did you get started in aviation? What were your goals when you first started, and are they still the same? Well, nobody in my family was a pilot. Nobody flew. Um, I was in high school, and uh, my high school offered an aviation course. I guess I needed a science credit to graduate, and uh, so I, I took that class, literally not having any clue what it was. Turns out um, an English teacher who was a teacher at the, at the high school was also a private pilot, and I guess he'd gotten permission from the principal or someone to teach this one afternoon I think it was seventh period. If you can imagine having seven periods, uh, aviation class. And that's where I got my whole start. And in the, in the second uh, semester after Christmas, he came out with a, a list of eight projects. And we had to select three projects off the list of eight. And uh, uh, that was going to be our semester, you know, assignment. And uh, so three of the eight uh, on the list were introductory flights at local airports. And the other five were like book reports. Well, you know, nobody wanted to do a book report. And back then, a, a, an introductory flight was, get this, $5. And that included the logbook. Wow. And, uh, and you, but you can only do that at one time. So he sent us to three different airports. So I flew at Cornelia Fort, Dixon, and, and Nashville, uh, which is now an international airport, for my three flights. And that's how I got started. And I, I went ahead and continued my flight lessons um, through my senior year in high school. And, uh, and then, you know, one, one certificate after another, whenever I could afford it after that. Um, and at some point, you know, all my, but all, all the guys I went to school with are now senior airline captains now. Uh, but I didn't want, I just never felt like that was my path. Uh, I wanted to, I wanted to teach and I wanted to fly and teach people to fly. And, uh, so that's, that's just been the direction I've taken and, and, uh, ne never regretted it for one minute. That's awesome. I, I guess reading through more about you preparing for this podcast it definitely seems like you've had an impact on scenario-based training. Wally and I talk on the podcast a lot about maneuvers and or individual tasks that young pilots are trying to accomplish successfully, obviously check ride maneuvers, et cetera. How, how far from you starting the Killing Zone book writing and doing some of the things you've done to change regular training to more scenario-based training, do you think we've really come? Do you think we're there yet? Do you think we have a long way to go as it relates? As a fly school owner, I want to be the best we can be. Sure. How, how far are we today from where we need to be? Well, in the early, in the early going of what I guess you'd call scenario-based trainings initiative, uh, there was a kind of a misconception. I believe it's a misconception that if you were in favor of scenarios, somehow you were against maneuvers and mm. we never were. I mean, you still got to be able to land in the crosswind. You know, you still got to be able to fly the airplane with, with, you know, with mastery. Um, but we also have to be able to use decisions in the real world. And, and I mentioned my very first student that I ever signed off for private pilot check, right? He passed and he was a really good student. And I was really excited that he passed because, you know, I, I was batting a thousand now if there only one. And, um, and I asked him, um, 
what he was going to do with his certificate now he learned it and he said that the next week he was going to uh, fly his family to uh disney world well i, I live in the nashville area disney world's in orlando and it, it hit me. I, I never taught him to fly that far of a distance. I never taught him to fly a distance that could go across several weather patterns. And by the way, Atlanta stands in the way between mm-hmm. Nashville and Orlando. So I never taught him to fly through Atlanta's airspace. And so it hit me like a ton of bricks that we had done everything that we were supposed to do. But I was not confident that he was ready for that, even though it was legal for him to do that. Um, and so from that very early part, I I always tried to say, well, how, how can we make this more realistic? Uh, how can we make the, the, um, the training more list realistic? You know, in, in most all flight syllabuses, there's a, there's a lesson where the instructor has you plan to go to airport uh, X and somewhere along the way, the instructor says, Oh, the, well, the weather has turned bad. We're going to have to do something else. And the, in the, in the students as well, we'll go over here to airport Z. Well, they already knew this was the diversion flight, right? This was not a big mystery that we weren't really going to mm-hmm. go to that first airport and that we were going to go sort of the way and then, and then divert. It's like, you know, everybody's like winking like this. All right. Now when, when you do that in that training environment, there's really no consequences, right? We weren't really going to air, that first airport destination anyway. So the fact that we diverted somewhere else, there was, no, there was no problem. But what if you were going to a family reunion? You know, what if you were going to a wedding? What if you were going to go to, you know, national championship basketball game? And what if you're going to Disney World and you had a, a week of prepaid, non-refundable hotel tickets? Now, if you don't go, now there's real consequences. Now there's real problems. And that's what causes people to press on when they know better. That story in the book does a real good job of telling a new pilot really how those external pressures will really impact their flying. Again, like you said, all the stories are stories. That's a real one. I think Wally and I talked about one. If What if you were going to propose to your future bride at a certain destination? You're going to want to get there. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you don't make it to the family reunion and you're bringing your 90-year-old grandmother, you're going to be a, a family outcast the rest of your life. So does that mean I go a little bit farther to see if the weather's a little bit better, a little bit farther ahead? Well, that's the temptation. And, and when, you, when you've never been in a situation like that in any part of your training, you're, you're facing this for the first time. So it's, it's difficult to say no. But if the training had always involved the consequences, if it always had put you in those situations, you know, we get better with practice, we humans. If we practice making these decisions, when the, when the time comes, when the, when the real uh, safety danger line can be crossed, we'll make a better decision. For sure. So your book has a lot of sections that read, you know, similar to stages of learning how to fly. I, I guess my question, and I know you've seen a lot, but where, where do you think people are making the biggest mistakes? Is it just decision making? Is it, we all talk about VFR and IMC. What's your gut tell you the biggest, where's the biggest problem lie if you could put your finger on it? I think that's what, I think what we just discussed is part of it. Uh, It is the ability, you know, the airplanes are fantastic. We can get there faster than we we can by driving, of course. There it's, you go straight line course. It's a lot more fun, but there are times when we shouldn't fly. And there are times when we have to say no. And, we, and, and sometimes those decisions are unpopular. 
in flight training, like I said, there's really no consequences if you, if you divert someplace because that's what sort of you were expected to do. But if you have someone waiting on you, if it's a business deal um, and, and you, you, have, you have to balance, you know, do I press on a little farther because I really need to make this flight or do I, do I upset a lot of people <laughs> uh, and say no? And that's a difficult decision. I th- I, so I think that's probably the, the, the crux of the matter for many pilots, especially newer pilots. I, I don't mean young. You can be a new pilot and not be young. Um, and uh, I, I think that being able to practice that. I, I was able to work for NASA, the National Air, you know, Aeronautics and Space Administration, on scenario-based training work. And uh, people say, well, how could you be working for NASA on that? Aren't they like rockets? And said, yeah, but the first day in NASA is aeronautics. And, uh, and so we, we, did, we did a lot of work where we took students and put them in scenarios like this, where we where they really had consequences that they had to deal with. And, uh, and now when Wally gives a check ride, it's right in, it's written in there that, uh, that there'll be a scenario placed in some way. So, so the student can be, um, we can witness the student under pressure, making good decisions. And, and uh, that um, uh, change to the testing was really a result of the, of the research. Uh, uh, FAA doesn't do any, anything. They're, date, they're very data-driven. They don't do anything without numbers. And so we had to give it to them. Well, the, you mentioned something in your book I want to talk about, but at a fly school, a lot of these CFIs are spending a little time in jets here and there. They're flying maybe second seat in a King Air. They're getting that first real pressure from a customer to get to the destination. You talk about flying for the university, but what's your rule as you fly for the university? Well, um, I have flown in the past for our unit with our university president, and I'm a faculty member, so I'm like 12 rungs down below the president, right? But I remember the first time I, I got on board with, with our university president, I said, you know, I understand that, that you are the president and there's really no power on a university campus except for the president. But once we close this airplane door, the decisions that I'm going to make have nothing to do with you being president. There is no meeting that is so important that we're going to endanger our lives for. There's, there's no trip home so that you can be there for another meeting tomorrow morning that is that is so important that we will risk our, our life. And he was, he was, and to his credit, he was always very like, look, once the door closes, I'm just a passenger. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, we all, we know pilot in command is what it is. I mean, uh, but sometimes passengers don't understand that, but, but uh, so I believe I've been, I've been able to confront those pressures up front ahead of time. And I would do the same thing with relatives and uh, friends and business associates says, look, I mean, we want to do this trip, but, but uh, we're going to we're going to balance this against what is wise and safe. Yeah, I think the the young men and women around here that may have that corporate experience for the first time should heed that warning that it, it, they really are pilot in command and they need to be holding their passengers to that same level of respect and safety. Corporate oh. president or a university president, they paid a lot of money for that airplane and that airplane was is, was paid for so they could get home at night. Or they could be home, or they could be at a at a meeting or at a ball game. That's what they bought the plane for. So when you tell them that they can't do it, you see there's a conflict already built in that uh, that if you haven't built some kind of uh, understanding ahead of time, there could be issues. One thing I find on check rides though is is that the the applicant is just so spring loaded to be extremely con- conservative. 
Um, I'll I'll give them a weight and balance scenario where maybe we're five pounds overweight, and I will I will ask them. Um, I said, well, you know, what what can we do? And and usually the 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 stock answer that I get is, well, we can't go, and we're landing at our destination with uh, maybe three and a half hours worth of fuel, uh, maybe thir- thirty five gallons. And, you know, I do say, well, is there, is there any way that we can go? Is, is, well, we can take bags off. You can take that 20-pound bag off. And I'll say, well, okay, I suppose I really need to take the bag with me. Is there anything else we can do? And, you know, usually way down the list of priorities is, well, I, I guess we could take off one gallon of fuel and we'll leave land there with three hours and 24 minutes worth of fuel rather than three hours and 30 minutes worth of fuel. That's an idea. Yeah. Well, and that's that's one of those many scenarios that maybe the removing of fuel doesn't feel like a flying thing, but it's very much a aviator thing. It's a pilot thing that we have to put in our toolbox to to use for sure. So you you said you might have a story towards the end. I, I got a million more questions. We're kind of coming close on time here, but I don't want to be respectful of your time, Paul. What 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 was the solo story you wanted to share with us? And maybe we can do a part two out in the future. Well, goodness, there's so many, but but listen to this one. I thought this was pretty unique. I signed off a guy for solo, standard situation. Everything was normal. I, I had him with sent him out with the instruction of going out to do three touch and goes. And after all the paperwork was done and door closed and engine started i snuck over to the control tower it was a class d airport and uh, uh i knew all the controllers in fact the controller on duty was one of my instrument students so they buzzed me in i went up to the top of the control tower because i wanted to watch this solo from from up there and so by the time i got up there the, the tower was giving my student his first ever solo takeoff clearance and away he went and um so he takes off makes left turn for downwind uh he calls in you know, I think one, three, one, four kilo left downwind runway, two, three, touch and go. He gets cleared for the touch and go. I pick up the binoculars. So I'm going to watch this guy's first landing. It's perfect. Well, I thought it was perfect. And uh, he makes his touch and go. He turns around for his second downwind, calls downwind. And about that time on the radio, we hear Kenson Tower, Sam 29,000 inbound for landing. Okay. Sam 29,000 is Air Force One when the president is not on board. Okay, so we all look to the right and we see a 747 coming and we all say, oh, my goodness. Only we didn't say, oh, my goodness. <laughs> yes. All right. Caution, wake turbulence. So my student is turning base and uh, and Sam 29,000 enters and reports down on runway two, three, touch and go. And the tower says, uh, Sam 29,000, you're clear for touch and go. Number two behind the behind a Cessna on base. And be advised, the Cessna pilot's on his very first solo flight. All right, so the Cessna and time stood still, guys. <laughs> As the Cessna turned final, it didn't look like it would ever get to the runway. Meanwhile, the 747 is uh, is turning base. Now, Wally, how fast is the 747 going about there? What do you say? I'm guessing about 170 knots, 160 knots, something like that. All right. So the Cessna is doing what? 50, 55 knots. So you can see the situation right. is not looking good. Um, so I tell the tower to tell my student to make this a full stop landing. So they tell him that. And the student says, no, no, my instructor wants me to make a touch and go. And the controller says, well, your instructor is actually up here in the tower. And he's asking you to make this a full stop this time. So finally, he gets down on the runway. 
the 747 is bearing down on him. He doesn't make the first taxiway. He kind of creeps to the second taxiway. He gets off, clears the runway. The 747 roars past behind him. Okay. Then the 747 captain breaks a little radio protocol at a towered airport, speaks directly to my student, and he says, good job, Cessna pilot, and welcome to the club. Awesome. Oh, how cool is that? That would be very intimidating. <laughs> well, uh, I, I don't know how, how fast a 740 or how much it would cost for a 747 to go around, but I'm sure it's your tax dollars while in. It wouldn't be right. that big of a deal. Right. To be fair, that, that airport was about an hour south of uh, Joint Base Andrews, and we had seen the, seven, the Air Force One there before doing practice, but it never had happened while I had a student on his first solo in the same traffic pattern. Well, we have a, quite a bit of jet traffic around here, and every once in a while we'll get a few fighter pilots, et cetera, that come have lunch at the airport. And it wasn't too long ago I was watching a student, and three Marine jets came and did a low pass, and he was in the pattern. I'm like, that's got to be so intimidating to have these white and orange Marine jets circling you while you're trying to land for the first time. Uh, all that definitely can be overwhelming. Paul, thank you so much for the books. I think uh, the aviation community is better because of it. I appreciate the Killing Zone. It's definitely made me think about the way we train and, and how our instructors talk and teach students and for whatever impact you made on scenario-based training. Thank you for that as well. Hopefully you'll take time and come back, whether it's after you write third edition or not. We'd love to have you on the show again. Well, I'd love to come back. And let me just say again to you, Bobby, and you, Wally, what a tremendous service you're doing for aviation. And uh, I, I hope uh, many people are able to benefit from, from the work you're doing. And you're doing it for, for all the right reasons and for, and for you know all the right causes. And so I applaud you because uh, you know, we're, we're all in this together. No question. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. And as always, stay behind the prop, Paul. Thanks for checking out the Behind the Prop podcast. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out online at BehindTheProp.com. Behind the Prop is recorded in Houston, Texas. Creator and host is Bobby Doss. Co-host is Wally Mulhern. The show is for entertainment purposes only and is not meant to replace actual flight instruction. Thanks for listening, and remember, fly safe. Fly safe.